Data storytellers, today on the show, I have a very exciting guest, Maddie Want. Maddie is the VP of Data for Fanatics Betting and Gaming, and I'm excited to see where the conversation goes. Maddie, welcome on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. This is really our first in-depth conversation, so I have a bunch of questions for you. Uh, maybe we can start with how did you get into the world of analytics? I mean, being a VP of data at a company like Fanatics uh, must have been a journey. So if you could give a little bit yeah. of an introduction, that'd be fantastic. I, um, While I was still in college, I was a nanny as one of my part-time jobs. I looked after two beautiful little girls and uh, and their mom was a partner at McKinsey and she had recommended to me, there's this guy that I know who is leaving to do a startup and and you should just go work for him because, you know, whatever happens, it'll be a wild ride. And so I I did. And I, I first went and spent the summer, but then I ended up being there for like three years. And um, I was working on supply chain analytics at first. It was a it was a, a fashion e-commerce company. And so the early days were all about like the warehouse pick and pack fulfillment operation. How fast were packages getting to customers? Where were packages going? Where could we optimize the supply chain? And how did it fit into the overall business model, cost of goods sold, you know, working its way down towards sort of retainable profit. And so that was a brilliant start, I think, because I wasn't doing data for the sake of doing data. I was just doing whatever the startup needed at the time. And from there, I transitioned into a product role and I moved over to Germany and that's where all of the real fun began, but it was not deliberate. I would say it was very accidental. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So looking at your background here, I'm, I'm cheating. I'm, I have my, I have your LinkedIn profile right in front of me. So, so you're from Australia, which I think all of our listeners can hear, uh, but how did you end up in Germany? So how did that happen? I was impulsive and young and I had no, nothing, you know, tying me and I love traveling and I had been to Berlin a few years prior on a trip and I love the city and because I had um, experience working in a startup at that time Berlin is um, Europe's sort of startup hub I thought okay I'm gonna move there and I already spoke pretty decent German and so I found a job um, as a product manager there and 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 then I stayed there for a few years and it was around the time that GDPR was being drafted and was beginning to move into sort of the legislative um, rodeo that it ended up going through. And obviously Germany was a huge part of of the heart of that legislation within the EU. And so it was a fantastic time to be there. Every Everybody at that point in time was suddenly more aware of, had a sense of urgency around data security, privacy awareness. And so that's when data governance really began for me. It was my time working there and and figuring out how to protect customer data in Germany in like 2015. So um, that was amazing. That was amazing. Sometimes I still wish I could be there or go back there more often, but I'm glad that I had the time. Mm -hmm. Those are fun times in Europe. At the time I was also in Europe, uh, that's when we launched Data Leaders 2017. We built that between 2017 and 2020. And it's so typical of the whole data world that there are these waves of hype and you know sometimes you have something like ChatGPT, but then on the flip side of that sometimes it's like some huge regulation and i remember when gdpr came out uh that was that was massive and i was actually in the uk 
the UK was still part of the, part of the EU, so we were very much in the conversation. And then, uh, well, you moved on to Audible, so that was probably the first like big, big role. I mean, Audible, as I told you uh, before, I'm a fan, I'm a customer, so I was interested to find out about your role there. So, how did that transition happen, and what was your mandate? Yeah, that was that was the biggest move. Moving from Germany to the US was was a culture shock in every possible way. I realized how sheltered I had been until then. Once I got to the US, um, that that happened just through a connection that I had made while I was working in Berlin in the space of mobile analytics. Um, who had a connection who worked at Audible and recommended, you know, they're hiring sort of like hybrid data product role right now, and you should put your name in the ring for that and. And so I did, and I had to fly over there for an interview, and then I got that job, and then they relocated me. And that was the beginning of a few years at Audible in um, a data product manager role, which now is a very well understood role, but at the time was very unusual. And I would say it was very little product. It was actually a lot of like data engineering, scrum master, product owner type stuff. Um, I was initially, I was figuring out how to prioritize the work of the team that did all of the data ingestion and modeling for the company. And then I spent some time figuring out how to standardize and govern the way that data is produced by services and clients that the company runs. And then towards the end of my time, I started setting up the AI team, which is now a beautiful, fully fledged, lovely, productive team. And so I really, I got a broad range of experiences there, which, you know, to a large extent, just defined how I'm now spending the rest of my career. Well, wow, that's a that, that's amazing. And at that time, of 2017, Audible has been going for a while, right? So, yes. uh, they're often for a good couple of years. And I just presume that it's one of those brands that is uh, born in data, like like Netflix. Uh, but apparently, as you're telling me, it was like actually a lot of data engineering and still figuring out how to get the data from the customers and you know create yeah. that beautiful unified experience that now we can all enjoy. Yeah, I mean, data's never done. <laughs> um, but but you know, Audible is a very well established company that had I think a couple of decades of history. But the the acquisition by Amazon happened in two thousand and eight, and and that began a very long and extensive period of you know consolidating architecture, sharing services, um, and and that went for data too. And so there was still a tremendous amount to be done. It was a good time to be there, um, but. You know, as you mentioned, like there, there was a there was a beloved product out there at the same time, and so it was it was from a data perspective, it was flying the ship while building it. Mm, absolutely, and it's rough. Oh yeah, absolutely, and I do remember actually when uh, because I was an early adopter. I remember when I moved to London, one of the first things I bought was uh, I think that was a paperwhite. That was like a big thing, and at the at, at the time, and I think around that period, the whole syncing was introduced that whatever I was uh, reading on an ebook, then actually my audiobook synced with it, right? So uh, would you say that it was, you know, one of the uh, one of the easier projects you've had in your life or uh, was it something that actually the, the organization made it easier? It, um, I would not list it among the easiest things that I have ever done, no. <laughs> it was, it was, um, plenty of challenge, but there was also, I think everybody feels obliged to say this, but in this case, it really is true. Probably the, some of the smartest people, the best engineers and the smartest leaders that I've ever had the opportunity to work for. And I would say like, yes, it was intense, but it was also so 
um, formative and just resulted in me improving as a data person so much that I definitely look back on it positively, even though I still remember, you know, how much time pressure and scope pressure we were always under. Mm, I can imagine. And we're super passionate about professional development. I mean, at the end of the day, I think the data storytellers is about professional development for data people. And you mentioned that how much you grew as a data person over at Audible. And that organically leads us to your next stop, which still in New York, I think you might have fallen in love with the with the Big Apple. Uh, and that was another opportunity. So what was that new role at, at Index Exchange? Uh, just on the surface, if I just look at your LinkedIn, it's a product management role, but I imagine that data was was really yeah. the lifeblood of that. So Index Exchange is a an SSP, and that's an ad tech acronym, which refers to a company that aggregates and services uh, digital publishers, digital websites, maps, et cetera, and works to fill their sites up with all of the ads that they could ever want. So an exchange decides how much money somebody is willing to pay to be in that ad spot and how much money the publisher is willing to sell that ad spot for and to who. And and the, the SSP is sort of where this exchange is facilitated. And so the entire company is a data company. That's all it does. It does. It's, it's a huge scaled exchange. And uh, my... My role there was to lead a couple of divisions of uh, product and engineering sort of combined units that worked on identity resolution. So if you see someone on the internet on one site, can you recognize them on another site, reconcile that back and, and use whatever you know about the customer to make a better decision about which ad to show them. And that obviously came with um, all of the privacy controls, opt-outs, implementation. And then secondly, um, the whole part of the exchange that was sort of globalized, meaning how how does the exchange comply with different national regional regulations, which was a, a huge data governance and control type project. And so that's primarily what I worked on in my years there. And I really, really enjoyed it. I think if, if, if you're looking at my background now and you can see there's no consistency in industry, right? There was e-commerce and then there was entertainment and then there was ad tech and now there's sports and that's because really I've I've always been more interested in the the shape of the data challenge than I have in like the specifics of the domain mm. shape of the data challenge and I think we'll spend a lot of time on exploring that um, but just before I like to explore the totality of your career at least to this point what is your mission now over at fanatics so now as the head of data for fanatics betting and gaming which um if if you know if listeners are, are not sports bettors themselves this is probably a very unknown uh world but i will say fanatics is an existing company and it's the um i think the largest american producer of uh league merchandise apparel etc and so if you've ever bought um, a jersey at team jersey there's a pretty decent likelihood it came from fanatics and in recent years, the business has decided to expand into a handful of other different lines and industries. And one of them has been betting and gaming, which has just been exploding since about 2018 as US states progressively legalize online gambling. And so 
being able to join a well-established company in a new business division and ride the wave of an exploding market was almost the dream come true. And then you layer on, you know, I was I was tech num- tech employee number six. I got to write the whole data strategy. I got to hire the whole data team. I got to partner with the tech that we wanted to use. And, and that gives me the strange satisfaction of knowing any mistakes made were mine. I didn't inherit anybody else's mistakes. And so at least I had a clean slate. Um, and the mission, you know, to your point is we're going to make the best fan experience possible across all fanatics companies. And it's clear to data people what that means. That means thoughtful sharing of data, as well as thoughtful deployment of data for improvement of the customer experience to improve relevance, to improve priority, um, and also just to have a better understanding of customers and what they want. The, uh, the chairman of Fanatics, Michael Rubin, has a frequent saying of, Fanatics will be the Amazon of sports. <laughs> and the, the point is to say, it's it's supposed to be really a, a one-stop sort of holistic sports experience. And FBG is going to, Fanatics betting and gaming is going to play an important part of that. And so that's what we're growing into. Mm, I love that. So Amazon of sports. Uh, whenever I hear something like this, uh, I just see great storytelling, right? Because Amazon is typically now something that is a very neat storytelling tool. Everyone has their own emotional experiences. You know what it is. It's like a very compelling, powerful image. And if it, if you can connect it to the mission of your own company with like one sentence, it's a really good cat- uh, catalyst of the right type of change, right? So now we are kind of arriving at data leadership as well. Um, I want to ask you um, about that book behind you. So precisely, when did you write precisely, precisely? Um, me and my co-author, Zach Tuman, a professor at um, Columbia SIPA, which is where I did my grad degree. Um, we started writing this in April 2019, so over four years ago. And the reason it took four years to get from first pen to paper to publishing is primarily the way the book that we chose to write is a book of stories. It's not a book of what Maddie and Zach think that you should do. It's, it's, I think it's about 20 cases, case studies of data leaders in all sorts of different industries, contexts, et cetera. And so number one, it's just a fascinating read because it's, it will move from drones used to deliver blood in remote parts of Rwanda in emergencies, straight away to tractors that have computer vision arms, which will decide whether a plant is a weed or a crop in a millisecond and shoot it with weed killer appropriately, over to, you know, cases that we're maybe more familiar with in the digital world, like the New York Times' story of migrating from an advertising model to a subscription model and what that meant for the way that they use data. So it's just a great read for stories, but that required a couple of years of interviewing folks. And that was the best part of the process for sure. The writing sort of fell into place after that. And and what we did was tease out themes and say, okay, yes, these contexts look very different. However, you can see this and this and this and this are actually shared. And so the insight here is that, you know, whatever it is. So 
that's the approach we took. That's why it took four years. And I'm very happy that it's finally out in the wild now. And I can say, I think that I won't write another book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very interesting, especially because a lot of our community members constantly ask us that, hey, you have all these data stories. Don't you want to write a book? And I'm kind of like, well, you know, I need to speak to a few more authors before I jump into something like writing a book. How did the idea, uh, how was this born? The idea that, hey, let's write a book about the shape of the data problem. I imagine that's what it's about and make it a series of stories instead of the, you know, typical consultant prescription, which is, you know, a dime, I'm in a dozen. If, if you look at the author out there, I'm very intrigued and you know, I haven't really read a book like this before. I don't think so. It came from the, the the class that Zach was teaching that I was taking at the time was, it was more general, but it was sort of similar in spirit, which was, let's look at the ways that technology is affecting public policy and and the way that technology is just sort of changing everything really, but, but with specifically an economic or public policy lens. And um, as we as we went through the course of the semester, there were just so many fascinating stories. And, and of course, I always gravitated to the stories that were about data transformation or data innovation. And um, at that time, Zach was just crazy enough to feel like he wanted to write another book. And he asked me to partner with him on it. And and we narrowed down on not just technology, but specifically data. And, and we wanted to make the book about that because that's where there was the most sort of appetite for more stories. That's where people wanted more cases. And that's where at least my peers in, in the degree at the time felt the least educated and the most hungry. And so I thought, okay, well, if that's representative of a market, then let's go for that. Mm. And why do you say that this is probably the only book that you will ever write? Why is this your magnum opus? Just <laughs> four years of Saturdays and nights and Sundays. And it, it was it was rigorous and taxing and it produced, you know, the, the quality of products that, that we expected and needed, but, um, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure when I might have that kind of free time again. Hmm. And, and when did you guys release it exactly? It actually was technically released technically on May 23rd. So about a week ago. Okay. There you go. So it might be one of those things, you know, after you give birth, you need a little yeah. bit of time yeah. until you forget the pain. So yeah. maybe maybe we're looking at something like this. And maybe this is this is postnatal book depression. <laughs> I just need time and space. Yes, yes, a distance uh, from the labor pains. Um, so uh, now I'm gonna ask you a question, which will probably be very similar to uh, you know, asking someone who is your favorite child. What is your favorite story from the book? It's really tough. Um, I have no favorites, but I have two favorites. And one of them is a story which we actually split into two parts because it was so meaty. And that story was about the NYPD and the sort of the overlap with data and policing and specifically the experiences and the initiatives that the NYPD has pursued over the last few years relating to um, creative and equitable uses of data to sort of optimize fighting crime. And I think that's a topic that really doesn't get as much airtime as it deserves. I think, you know, whenever you see data and policing in the same headline, it's always a bad thing. <laughs> 
Um, but I think, you know, dragging the stories out about innovation and progress in that area specifically triggers discussion about data that I think we need. And so I loved that focus. And the people that we interviewed were just fascinating and brilliant. And um, and it was a really like deep story that actually ended up covering a couple of decades. So that's one. And the second was about a a government, a federal government employee in Singapore who at the very beginning of the COVID pandemic, within 90 days of the of the sort of shutdown that happened in Singapore, had innovated a way to leverage Bluetooth for proximity-based contact tracing in Singapore. And there were unique parts to that story. For example, he got Google and Apple to cooperate which resulted in the joint launch feature that, you know, was unprecedented and, and is still unprecedented three years later. Um, but it also focused on why would something like that succeed in Singapore when it didn't succeed in the US? What are the cultural and political differences that would affect adoption of a new technology like that? Um, and, and how does that shape outcomes? Like how does it literally shape how the pandemic went? Um, and so I love that one from a more macro perspective. I mean, the the te technology is interesting too, but you know we're all familiar with Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and GPS, and so that sort of proximity-based measurement is pretty well understood. Uh, I think I think the policy implications were were the exciting part of that story. Mm. This is fascinating, and actually, with the uh, NYPD story, I mean, I don't know the details of that, but just you know, having been a part of an armed organization. Before I know that it, you know, those those uh, bodies are not usually the most receptive to change and innovation, right? So it's fascinating to me that you know, from what you're saying, they were. So uh, what was the lever of innovation? When I mean lever of innovation, what was that kind of pressure that actually made them uh, receptive to embrace? Uh, again, what I'm uh, getting from you, maybe a little bit more detail would be useful on what they actually did. Um, but from what I'm hearing is that they innovated and innovated in a fruitful, powerful way that brought value on multiple, multiple fronts. Yeah, it was a fascinating story. So it, it starts like years ago. I can't actually remember the date, which is sort of crazy considering how many times I've looked at that story. But I think it's about um, the early sort of 1900s. And... Um, no, it's not. Oh my goodness. It's like the 1980s maximum. Sorry, I'm back. And at that time, uh, the police commissioner was, um, a new police commissioner was brought in trying some new tactics for quickly identifying and, and even preventing crimes. So we're getting into sort of the, the attempts at predictive and obviously 1980s, this is not the land of AI yet. And so what they did was he pulled in every precinct chief every week and had a top to bottom meeting um, for a new sort of management process they called CompStat, in which a pin would be put on on a location in the map of New York City for every single crime that happened that was above the reporting threshold. And they would be grouped by type of crime. So it would be homicide, robbery, burglary, et cetera. And, and that data would be visually used to see clusters and to deploy resources in a more concentrated way to those locations. And, and the reason we included that beginning story is, is that is use of data, even though no computers were involved. There is still data, there was still data long before computers were involved. 
And that was a good background because the now we jump to 2018 and and what was happening there was there was a pocket of resources, very small, just a couple of data scientists who had been hired and were tasked with working on data science in general. And there was there was a reasonable degree of autonomy as to sort of identifying and pursuing projects. And um, that happened because there was a chief who was open to it. That's the only reason that happened. It didn't represent any sort of broader cultural change or any sort of heavier investment than that. It was really just a pocket of openness. And um, the the chief and the data scientists involved in the story are, are all brilliant. And anyway, what what these data scientists did was identify sort of the modern version of that same uh, clustering problem that I'd mentioned before, which was how can we use data about historical crimes to more quickly identify patterns or predictability in new crimes? And so it would say, okay, well, there's been a robbery on East 73rd Street and now we plug the details of that robbery into the system. It turns out actually Every Monday, there is a robbery within three blocks of that. Okay, so we likely have a repeat perpetrator, and so, et cetera. You can see where this goes. And and they recognize that this was a, a great problem for data science because machine learning has the ability to find patterns and find clusters that even the most brilliant human minds miss. And so they did that. They got a bunch of historical crime data. They took out any, obviously, directly identifiable data but they also took out zip code as a way to neutralize um, socioeconomic bias. So we no longer knew where those crimes happened down to the zip code level, um, although it did include like precinct and borough and things like that. So at a general level, um, that was still included. And and even with those um, even with those factors removed, what they developed was able to what they called reconstruct a crime, meaning identify that a new crime belonged in a pattern with other crimes at about a 70% success rate in all of those three major crime categories, which was pretty stunning given the constraints that they were faced with on the data side. And so why didn't that become, you know, the the right hand, the the two IC of, of every precinct chief, every officer out there? Why weren't they immediately plugging all new crimes into this system? And and the answer to that is just the same reason every data product product or project fails, which is there wasn't the broad spirit of adoption. The technology wasn't integrated into real workflows. The models weren't updated often enough. The people who built them left and they hadn't been, you know, productionized to the degree that they would carry on without the scientist. Really unsexy, totally quotidian reasons why data projects fail. And it was fascinating just to look at even when you can develop a very effective tool with such a profound social benefit, it can still fail. And and if it does, it may well be for the same reason that any other project does. Hmm. And we're kind of hitting on the on on the shape of the data problem, as you or already mentioned. Um, I can again with the contact tracing example from uh, Singapore, you already mentioned that there were multiplicity of reasons why that was actually possible. And one of which was the difference between the culture in the US and Singapore, which again, very much relates to the general problem of, of, of the culture in the business, the cultural context, right? 
So I loved, I, this might have been the first time I heard anyone say spirit of adoption. And I love it because it really strikes at the heart of the problem. It is that, it is that belief about data and then workflow. That's a behavior. And guess what culture is? You can look it up in the dictionary. It's a collection of be beliefs and behaviors, nothing more, right? So maybe now we can zoom in on organizations and enterprise and you self, as someone who built these products and now is tasked with actually building this whole function from the bottom up, which I really appreciate that you have a sense of ownership about it. As you said, I can't point the finger to anyone because I'm building it from scratch, right? So where do you see the biggest challenges and pitfalls when you actually want to create that data-driven culture? Huge question. I know it's being thrown around all the time. Every conference addresses it, right? But I really love the hands-on experiences. So just your take and we can you know see where it takes us. Yeah. The... So much depends on what kind of an environment you're starting with. And if you're starting from scratch, it's a very different problem to if you're walking into a legacy organization. And if you're walking into a legacy organization, are they ready for change? Or have you been hired to solve a problem that's fundamentally unsolvable because nobody's going to help you? And and so let's let's just pick and start with you're coming into an existing legacy company with a bunch of legacy data, but there is an appetite for change. You've been hired because somebody needs to start this whole data strategy thing. And I once worked with a, a data leader who was so brilliant in, in the way that he operated that that really became my roadmap for situations, even on a smaller scale. He spent six months listening asking, listening, asking, listening. Initially, he had a very small scope. It was basically just running a very small team of data scientists. But in reality, he was expected to be a leader of strategic change for the entire organization. And so that difference in actual granted authoritative power versus expected impact, that delta, he, he built credibility, piece by piece, brick by brick, until he was being sought out more for input, for strategic input. And gradually, you know, steady delivery of helpful solutions that proved value, which is tough in data science, as we know, is not always a direct link between experiment, experimenting with something and, and finding real value there. Um, combined with just the type of approach that he took, which was very collaborative, very calm, really seeking to understand how the business worked before trying to change it, et cetera. And, you know, over time, took on this department as well and took on the BI department and took on, and, and now, you know, would, would have like quite a huge span of control, including the whole product organization. Because what happened over the course of this person's tenure was that the understanding of the impact of data strategy grew so much that it was understood to actually be a huge part of the future of the product. And that connection, I think, was very important because uh, most organizations understand the need for data for analytics. We all need to do financial reporting. We all need to understand performance and predict revenue and those kind of things. But understanding that there's another side of this, which is the customer experience, especially in B2C products, and having a leader who can perform both of those functions, like build and ship product is a whole different skill set to develop financial reporting. 
but both of them are data-driven functions. Um, and and this leader did a great job at, at doing that. And so I think back on that and I think there was not a lot of tailwind for him when he started. The, the tailwind was basically the executive team had recognized a broad need for data strategy and a small team was given. Um, and and the conversion of that into pretty much you know the product strategy was was of his own doing. Mm. So that was basically so you're talking about when there's a legacy organization that is some appetite for change, but then what do you do to actually translate that mere appetite into actually people eating and then getting seconds and then really now living their lives in a data-driven way, right? There are so many, so many steps there. So, uh, for example, in, in this context, and I think you mentioned, for example, governance, and it would be maybe an interesting thing to just zoom in on a little bit because you mentioned, for example, one of the bottlenecks is that there aren't proper workflows, for example, for data, or the people who built some of those structures leave and that there's no follow-up. Governance is another topic that's always being talked about at conferences. It's almost a little bit mystified. Um, what do you think are the biggest opportunities and pitfalls of building and implementing a governance frameworks? What are the hallmarks of a functional governance framework that actually people will adopt and will be very effective at getting the job done? The, the, the governance team sort of KPI would be how much trust is there in the company's data. And getting that trust when it's starting off low, you know, folks believe that the data isn't accurate. Folks have had negative experiences when trying to access the data themselves, et cetera. That takes a lot of um that takes a lot of diligence to pay that kind of trust debt down. And so a data governance team has like a big span of what they could choose to focus on. They could choose to focus on um, driving a big bug bash to identify, document, and burn down all of the data bugs that can be found, just as a big showy public way of saying we are serious about making improvements. They could choose to do an audit against sort of classical master data management standards and try and develop a big picture of where we're strong and where we're weak. They could bring in third-party um, guidance, maybe even legal guidance to say like, what are the actual data uh, jurisdictional or or whatever sort of frameworks that we're obligated to work under and and where, and, and then figure out how are we doing against those. And it's basically, what does it take to make every single involved party believe that we're, we've got valuable data and we're getting value out of it. Um, we trust that it's correct. And we feel like we have the right level of access to it ourselves. It's, it's, it's a huge amount of that. And so my team, for example, my governance team focuses a lot on, we're a highly regulated business, obviously. Gambling is, um, is very highly regulated, which is wonderful because it necessitates investment in governance upfront, which is what I would want to do anyway. But, you know, we've got documentation, we've got um, catalog and controls. We've got a whole suite of, you know, privacy and and um, customer customer controls. We've got partnerships, et cetera. And and we're very fortunate to start that way because coming in later and having to rebuild trust after it's been lost is obviously a ton a ton more difficult. Mm. 
have you had that struggle before or maybe do you have some stories maybe even in the book that addresses that kind of struggle of how do you make a change if it's not not a lost cause then what what can you do to kind of break that cycle of uh losing trust continuously yeah i i have <laughs> i'll go to personal experience for that one um in in one of my previous roles the sort of the state of trust of data was close to nil there was there was an executive team who consumed reporting and even they would have said no none of us really know if these numbers are really true but they're all that we've got there's no alternative numbers to look at and you know at least week over week they're consistent and so we basically normalized for whatever problems there are over time and that's obviously almost the lowest point you can start at apart from the executive team you know anybody you would ask would say oh that data set's inaccurate the you know the client SDK is several versions out of date. Uh, we only capture that data on one product and not on another product, so the aggregate numbers are not real. Um, you know, there's a new billing pricing model that's been rolled out, and it's only in some regions and not others. But it's that's not tracked in the schema, and so you won't know. All of that kind of stuff, really real problems. It, it was not a lot of I'm not sure what's wrong with it, but I don't trust it. It was a lot of really real concrete problems, and so. In that circumstance, um, we did start with the big bug bash. We started with a really big bang. All right, we're here. We're going to fix data governance. Let's start. Tell me what you think the problems are. Um, a, a huge list came out of that, and we knocked out almost all of the items on the list. And we were able to go back to stakeholders and back to the engineering team and the analytics team and say, um, we fixed 90% of these. Keep them coming. Keep them coming or... We need you to start talking a little differently about our data. And, and that was a conversation we had had to have too. Trust in data is very contagious. And so if you have trusted, respected folks in the organization saying that they don't trust the data, the, the scale of impact could be very huge. And, and as we were making real improvements to the quality of the data and building tools to sort of automate that quality in the future, there were a couple of um, key players who I had to go to and say like, we have burned down a lot of data quality debt. How are you feeling about this data now? And they would say, feeling a lot better about it. And I would have to say, okay, can you do me a favor and, and you know, in whatever rooms that you're in, just sort of change the temperature a little bit. If you, if you hear, you know, old old school thinking about our data is terrible, um, just just be a little bit of a champion there. If you would do me a favor, and. And that turned out to be incredibly effective because it was just the little nudge that people needed, you know, even if their personal perception of the data had changed, nobody thinks to be an advocate for something that they don't own in a room that the owner is not in, right? And, and but they were very happy to because they appreciated the work that we had done to improve the data. Um, so it was like having a little team of embedded champions um, that was very effective. There's so much I love about this. One is that, so first of all, in the previous uh, part of this conversation, you mentioned that, uh, for example, that person had to come in and really like start slowly, create some uh, success, but it's like a long process. It's always like a long process, but also you're know, very straightforward that, okay, this situation called for a big splash, like a bug bash, right? To get that momentum going and just to tag the problem and, you know, keep them coming, keep, keep them coming. 
And at the same time, I think it's a great snapshot and an example of being an agent of change, almost like a broker of change. That, okay, we did this, like the, this was the work that needed to be done. Um, we shoveled all that cement, right? And now I got to go out and seek out key stakeholders and start a conversation with a specific desired outcome. So in this case, you're almost like activating and leveraging, not even almost, like you're straight out activating and leveraging your success by actually starting a discussion with the person, getting them to recognize something that you've already done. And then after you said, hey, we did all this work, do you enjoy the fruits of this work? Do you like it? And they say yes. It's just one quick step to ask that person to be your champion. That isn't this like huge thing you need to do. And boom, now you have an advocate. Now you have someone who does the work for you. And as you said, I also like like some of these like phrases that you use, like the spirit of adoption, or like just change the temperature a little bit, because that's what it is. It's a temperature and it is that momentum that you need. And once you get that going, it's a domino effect. So um, no, no, this was really cool. And then on the, on the flip side of that, so this is governance, something that's very much connected to this topic. And I would be curious to hear, like, for example, uh, at Fanatics, as you started to build this uh, project, um, data literacy. Um, it's one of those questions that sometimes it actually sparks a debate, even when we're invited to a conference and we ask some barely provocative questions, almost triggers people. Uh, because some people see data literacy as the mission to get the the uh, on the ground uh, user to understand what a data mesh is and how it works, right? Every single person in the company, and some people are you know more like Apple, more like Apple in terms of look, it's a need to know basis. We are just focusing on the experience. We're taking a proactive approach. We're reaching the customer where they are. So, what is your take on on data literacy in this whole equation? of the shape of the data problem. Uh, are you? What is your approach of actually building data lit literacy in the organization? There's, there's always this problem of who are your users and what level are they at? How can you talk to them about data? Ranging from you know the analysts that you work side by side with every day, they're going to have one level of understanding you can jump right into the toughest problems with versus you know, somebody who needs some data for decision support in some arena, but you don't typically work with, they don't have sort of any hard, you know, for example, SQL Python, Python skills of their own. That's a totally different way that you're talking to that person. And, and a couple of years ago, I would have said, democratize the data, you know, bring the walls down, let people have access, create training guides, you know, and, and over the years I became just that phrase started to bug me. And I think what I put my finger on was giving people access to a database of 100,000 tables isn't democratizing the data. Having access to the data, even if it's clean, good quality data, even if there's a data catalog to explain what everything is, that isn't what democratizing the data means. And so I've stopped using that phrase. And I, I think that phrase is on its downfall anyway. Um, but what it really means is meeting people where they are, giving them the tools that they actually need, not just lowering the bar on the most technical access possible, but saying, okay, what you actually need is a curated daily report that is in your inbox by the time you wake up. What you need is to stop going and picking individual customer attributes for a new model. You need a customer feature store. 
that you can pick from every time. Somebody needs to build that for you. Or when a security vulnerability comes up, you need to be able to map to the table that that came from and the team that owns that table in a pager duty, you know, emerging type situation. And there are so many different consumers and stakeholders of the data that there are, you know, a dozen different different ways to connect with them about it. And that's democratizing the data. And so I have started saying, you know, not everybody needs to know everything. Not everybody needs to have access to everything. What that can even do is create a lot of confusion because, you know, in the worst case scenario, somebody gets access to the database, they write a query, they pull the answers, they don't understand the data, they haven't done the correct query, but they got an answer. So they took that answer, they went and made a bunch of decisions on it, and money was spent, customers were impacted, you know, whatever the decision was. And they'll never know that that was the wrong answer because they had access that they didn't need to have and we could have helped. Um, and sometimes that gets a little pushback. I think, I think the idea of having access to the data is powerful. And I, I do think it's a little overvalued sometimes. Mm. I kind of expected that answer. Honestly, I, uh, we did a podcast with uh, Glenn Hoffman, who's the chief analytics officer at New York Life. I mean, you guys might know each other. I mean, you're in the, in the, in the same city. And he has a similar view on democratizing the data. He says that you don't want to democratize everything. Like, for example, you don't want to de democratize brain surgery, do you? It's kind of like that, uh, that angle of, okay, instead, it almost like sometimes gives you a false, at least from our experience, it gives you a false sense of accomplishment that, well, look, I've done my job. The data is accessible. Instead of kind of owning the burden of, no, I got to build an experience, yes. right? And uh, another guest, uh, Dave Coughlin, uh, he also um, produced a data story for us. And the punchline was really that the app is the apex predator of data science. He built an app over at CBS that then the sales team called uh, Disneyland for salespeople, right? Which is like a more, more controlled experience, but generated huge value, right? So... When you said that, I know I got to focus on the person. I got to focus on the individual. I got to be that consultative partner and kind of like an entrepreneur build something amazing for them that actually addresses the pains and the circumstances and the context in which they are embedded. So connected to that, and uh, I understand that we don't have too much time, but you know we can't really brush over the 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 hot topic of storytelling in that sense because first of all, you are a storyteller. Just you know, even in this podcast, you approach the questions definitely from that perspective, but you literally just wrote a book. So if you reflected on that, uh, what role did storytelling play in your professional development and how did it make you, if it did, a better data practitioner? Wow. That's a big question. <laughs> I think um, I, I tell stories every day and sometimes it's a story of what things could look like. Sometimes it's a story of a vision or a target state that I'm trying to compel people to work towards. Sometimes it's a story that explains why things are the way that they are and sort of, you know, abstracting some history into like a usable nugget for someone. But a lot of the time it's it's pretty high level stuff. It's um, It's telling stories about how we're going to use data to win. So it's often strategy. Um, this competitor is weak in this way. The reason that we're strong is X, Y, Z. And so we're going to go after that. Um, and those stories obviously pertaining to data. And it's 
it's way beyond just how do you present the data in a dashboard in order to be able to tell the story of last week's performance. And it's it's into like the future of the product, you know, decisions that impact the future of the company pretty significantly. And and it's also um, a really good organizational tool. I spent a lot of my day telling stories about one thing to another person and then again and again and again. And and it'll be, you know, I don't understand why this person did this or why this service is written in this way or why this data doesn't exist. And, and I remember. And so I'll tell the story of why it is that way. And now this person has the context and they can continue instead of, you know, having a frustration, emotion or something like that. So you can use it to bring people up to speed. And in the remote environment, that has just been 1,000 times more important um, than it was in person when you could just knock somebody on the elbow and say, hey, why is it that way? So asynchronous communication is is probably the other major use case that has helped me, but definitely way more since we've been working from home. Hmm. And uh, it was an intentionally open-ended question not to lead the business too much. And you actually took it exactly where I thought you would, that it is a tool and an organizational tool. A lot of people, when they say that, look, my biggest challenge is data-driven culture. If you zoom in a little, uh, zoom in a little bit, it is the, the misalignment of stakeholder perspectives, for example. How can I bring stakeholders on the same page? Well, exactly as you said, like storytelling is that tool because first of all, stories are memorable. That will be the thing that actually connects with people. And then through that, you will share reality right that's the that's the whole idea that now we understand the world and what surrounds us and where the company is going and our competitors and our customers and the health of the company through watching the same movie and as a leader even when you mentioned that wow i needed to go to these people and ask them to evangelize a little bit our success you're basically asking them hey are we on the same page we did this this is what happened can you can you basically go out and share the good news you know with the uh, with the organization as well so, uh, Mehdi, from your perspective, so because I understand that we only have like uh, five minutes left. So if you look at data science today, uh, we just can't really skip a, a topic like chat GPT. I would like to look at it more like uh, risks and opportunities in the industry. What do you think about this current wave of hype and excitement, even if we just look at generative AI in and of itself? Uh, what do you think are the greatest opportunities and risks right now for data science professionals when they're trying to contend on how to approach this new technology? I uh, I was just reading the other day a story about um, a professor in Texas who had failed his entire grade because he had, uh, one by one, put all of their final essays through ChatGPT and asked ChatGPT, did you write this for this person? Did you write this for this student? And each time ChatGPT has said like, yes, or even said like, I wrote these sections or something like that. And the professor said, okay, well, you're all, you're all failed because you all use ChatGPT to write your final essays. And, and that's a, if that's a microcosm of, of the kind of thing, it's a very banal thing to go wrong, but the impact on those people's lives was real because now they're fighting for reinstatement. And, and it came down to that professor doesn't understand what ChatGPT does. ChatGPT doesn't have an obligation to tell the truth. It's a large language model. It can create beautiful, realistic um, manipulations of language, and it can summarize things brilliantly, and you can use it for writing nice emails, but it is not um, a research tool. 
that is made even more complicated by, okay, well now Bard is out and Bard can connect to the internet and do a web search. And so tool by tool, you know, the way that some are pushing ahead in, in, in product features is sort of adding to that confusion. But I'm a technologist at heart, and so I'm mainly excited. But I do have a, a big dose of wary, of course, as as a lot of folks do, and and there are so many opinions on this topic that are valid and thoughtful. It's just it's a big tent. There's a lot of room for opinion about this, and um, in some ways, everybody's going to be right and everybody's going to be wrong. But I do think the the forward momentum is unstoppable, and so what I worry about is that public understanding of today it's large language models, but soon we'll be back to, you know, other kinds of AI that, that will be leaping forward in progress, that folks will be left behind because they won't get the same sort of literacy education as other folks will. And those who have time and the privilege to sit by a computer and like read about how these things work, that's not everybody. And so I feel that there's an obligation, honestly, for a government-driven public service initiative to educate the general public on AI so that we don't get sort of bubbles of fear, fear arising from ignorance, not fear arising from legitimate risks. And, and then instead we can have people who, you know, just like when the television came out or just like when the internet came out, like this is a class of technology that everybody is going to wind up using and adopting and they probably are without even realizing it today. And so you just have to supplement that with the right understanding and education and literacy. There's no way to sort of prevent it. I don't think anyway. Hmm. Um, so I, I want to see federal governments, state governments coming out with AI PSAs. Well, maybe we will see it in the in the not too distant future. I mean, there are yeah. th th there's movement. Um, and then final question. So just looking at your professional development and your evolution as a as a data practitioner, if you could give advice to the aspiring leaders of the, of the future in data science and analytics, what would that be? What would you recommend them to focus on to make the most of their professional development and really take advantage of uh, this you know decade of data that's upon us, but really the uh, the the sexiest professional of the twenty first century, as they say. Yeah. I think I would I would first encourage somebody to think about what how they imagine achieving impact and and specifically choosing between do they want to be an expert do they want to create the next generation of something do they want to like this could be research development whatever it is developing a deep deep expertise in a data function and like propelling everything forward by being the one who creates things or are they interested in people leadership, in business, in strategy, in whatever it is? And and the guidance would be very different depending on where they're leaning. And for this, obviously, I would suggest like get deeply into it, spend the time, do the work, like have the portfolio and that kind of thing. That's pretty well known. But for folks who want to track towards a general data leadership role, I would say resist the pressure to specialize which you will be faced with at every turn. And and the reason and I faced that my entire career, I spent a couple of years in data governance. Okay, well, I'm a data governance person now. No, I'm not. Now I'm going to go spend two years in data analytics and I'm going to be an analyst and then I'm going to spend two years in data product and be a product person. That was me consciously every time saying, 
No, I'm not subscribing to be an expert. I want to know about everything at a lesser depth. And I want to be a functional data leader who has empathy and experience in multiple data domains so that I can be a credible leader to the entirety of the team and not just the, 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 the members of the team who have the same technical background that I do. And, and I think the reason that people get pushed towards specialization so much in data is every role wants to hire somebody with prior experience in that role. And the pool is so small that titles are given out, you know, big titles. And if you've got a job in analytics, then the next job you might be offered would be a senior analyst. And the next job you might be offered is like a manager of analytics or, or whatever it is. And, and suddenly 10 years have passed and you, you never really wanted to spend this long in it, but people keep paying you more and more to do it. And so you keep doing it. And I think like it requires going back to square one a couple of times and saying, I'm going to not take that opportunity. And I'm going to tell the people who think of me as exclusively an XYZ person that in fact, that's not my track. And why, where I want to take my career is more broad. And so that's the reason why I'm going to turn down this and I'm going to put my hat in the ring for this instead. Hmm. I love it. And it really connects to a previous conversation I had with Dave Coughlin, who just wrote a book about uh, how to advance your career, not just as a data science professional. It's called Entry Level Escape. And he promoted the same kind of intentional thinking about where you want to take your career and how you need to resist certain pressures and take active steps towards making that vision a reality. So, uh, Maddie, I really enjoyed the conversation. I really appreciated your approach to the questions. I was not afraid to throw you a few maybe slightly curveballs because I knew that you will knock them out of the park. And, you know, some people like to answer questions more like as a, as a politician, very stay, you know, staying safe, but, uh, you were not squeamish about, you know, making these statements, for example, resist the pre the pressure to, to specialize. And, uh, yeah, uh, I really loved it. And thank you very much. And Louis, hope to collaborate with you moving forward. Thank you. Thanks for having me.